Well, in a couple weeks, on uh, September 8th, we're planning on jumping into a study of the book of Ephesians together uh, on Sunday mornings, and I'm looking forward to that and have begun preparing for that. Um, and we, uh, last time I was here, two weeks ago, we finished a series on uh, fighting against sin, fight for your life. And so we, we have a couple of weeks here that are sort of in between weeks. Uh, and so I thought we would, uh, we would look at the book of Psalms together, just a couple of Psalms, the first two, um, and, uh, and study these and, and try to help you uh, as you read the Psalms. If you were to ask Christians, most Christians, to list their favorite book of the Bible or their top two or three, I would venture to guess that the Psalter would be in that list of the top two or three for most people. And why do you think that is? I think it's because the Psalms give us a full range of emotions and a full range of human experience. When we read the Psalms, we often see ourselves there and see experiences that we're going through day to day. It's easy to identify uh, with the thoughts and the responses of the psalmist. It's poetry, and so it tugs on our emotions in a way that's different than Paul's epistles or even sometimes the narrative. And so we enjoy the Psalms. We love reading them, uh, and we, we normally get quite a bit out of them. Um, many times when you read through uh, the Bible in a year or have a Bible reading plan in front of you, they'll have a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they'll also include a daily reading from the book of Psalms. And so many Christians are often in the book of Psalms on a regular basis. And one of the interesting things about the book of Psalms is that you've got 150 different Psalms, and a lot of times they don't really seem to fit together. Uh, we sort of read them as if they're in isolation from one another. And some of that is really understandable because you're not dealing with a story like you would in the book of Genesis or in the books of Samuel. And you're not dealing with an epistle where it's logically making an argument. And so you sort of go from one psalm to another, and you can jump around in the psalms, and they, they all feel like they're independent poems who don't have a lot of connection to one another. And so I know many of you read the psalms, and, and we all tend to read them in isolation from one another. And so I want to I give you some help in your reading of the book of psalms and your engagement with these psalms. I want to increase your understanding of what's happening and some of the major themes that you will find in almost every psalm. And so I want to look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 this week and next week. And the reason for that is because these two psalms form the introduction to the entire Psalter. Everything else flows off of what you're going to find in these two psalms. And the themes that you're going to discover this week and next week in these two set the trajectory for the rest of the book. And the book of Psalms actually does fit together a lot more coherently than most of us seem to think that it does. Now, if you open your Bibles to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they're probably on the same page. But these form the introduction to the book of Psalms. And if you'll notice, we normally think of the Psalms as written by David, but neither one of these two are written by David, or at least they're not attributed to him at the top in a, in a superscription there. Psalm 3 is, though, and so you can tell that the, one, the person who compiled the Psalms is sort of setting these two apart. Most of the rest of the Psalms in the first book, all the way to Psalm 41, are attributed to David, and so these two are kind of unique there. But these two Psalms also fit together because of something else that I want to show you. Look at Psalm 1, the way Psalm 1 begins. 
Blessed is the man. And then look down at Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. The last phrase there. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can see there that whoever compiled these has, has put them together in this way, and they sort of are bookended. They start and finish with this word, blessed. It ties the two psalms together. And so the author wants us to read these two psalms together in conjunction with one another. And as an introduction to the Psalter, they're going to set the themes for us for the rest of, rest of the book. Now, this word blessed, and we've talked about this before in the New Testament, but most of the time when we hear the word blessed, we tend to think that God is approving. It's sort of a top-down reaction that God has to us. He's looking at something and saying, I approve of them. They're doing well from my perspective. And there is a word that means that in the Old Testament, and there's a word that means that in the New Testament, but here, that's not this word. It's not the word for God's approval. This word here actually could be translated happy. It could be translated flourishing or well-being. This is describing the good life. This is describing a life that is filled with good things and with fulfillment and satisfaction. It's a, it's a path of living that is flourishing. And this word that's used at the beginning of Psalm 1 and at the end of Psalm 2 is this, the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word that's used in the Beatitudes. So it's the same thing there. And so what this introduction to the Psalter in Psalm 1 and 2 is telling us is that this book, the Psalter, is going to teach us how to live well and how to live a life of fulfillment. And if you will give yourself to this book, it will instruct you in that path. Now, how specifically does the Psalter do that? And how specifically do Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 set us up for the good life and a life of happiness? Well, next week we're going to look at Psalm 2, but just to try to, to summarize what's happening in Psalm 2 right now, Psalm 2 is focused on God's work in all of history, which is culminated in His Son. His Son is the centerpiece of everything that happens in history. He is the chosen King. And the life of fulfillment and happiness, the good life, comes from, look at chapter 2 and verse 12, Blessed, happy are all who take refuge in him. A life that is well-lived is only well-lived when refuge is found in the chosen king, in God's chosen king, and when that understanding is had. And so the life of happiness comes from finding refuge in the king, and that's Psalm 2, and then Psalm 1 complements Psalm 2 and brings the other half of the picture of the good life into play. And you sort of put these two together, and you understand how you live well and, and, and what should be the driving focus of your life. And Psalm 1 says that happiness or fulfillment comes to the one who meditates on God's word. And so you put those two together, and you've got meditation, giving yourself to God's Word, and you've got finding refuge in the Son, and you understand that God's Word is the place where we hear God teach about His Son, and about the chosen King, and about His plans in history, and all that He's doing. And so as we give ourselves to the Word and meditate on His work in history, which finds fulfillment in His Son, that's when we find happiness and fulfillment. 
And the entire Psalter, all the Psalms follow that trajectory and all the Psalms display the character of the God who is working in history. And all of the Psalms call us to think about God's work in history and to offer praise to him as we ponder what he has done. Our response is that we worship him and we rejoice and we praise him and we sing to him because we're so excited about the work that he has done in his chosen king, in the Son. And so we meditate on God's word. And so that's kind of the big picture. So that's what we're going to do this week and next week, is to fill out that big picture of combining Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And so today in Psalm 1, if you look down at Psalm 1 and verse 6, you find in Psalm 1 that there really are only two ways to live. There are only two paths in this life. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's two paths. There's only two ways to live. With all the varieties that we observe in lifestyles of people today, you can boil it all down to two ways to live, two paths, two lifestyles. One is the path of righteousness that leads to fulfillment and joy. And that's the path that giving yourself to the Psalter and the themes of this book will take you down. The other is the path of wickedness. And that path ultimately leads to judgment and uselessness in this life. And so this psalm, Psalm 1, highlights that contrast very clearly. The psalmist is not messing around. He wants you and I to understand that there are only two paths, and you are on one of these paths or the other, and he wants to articulate that path to us and explain the results of that path to us. And so that's what we're going to see today. So in this psalm, Psalm 1, we've got three contrasts that motivate us to a life of fulfillment. That's the driving force of this psalm. Three contrasts. You're going to see it go back and forth, describing these two paths to us. And the reason for that is the psalmist wants to motivate us to a life of fulfillment. He wants you to live in a way that is happy and flourishing and fulfilled. And so he's calling you to that through this psalm. And the first contrast is found in verses 1 and 2. And I'm phrasing it this way. It's the contrast of control. So this psalm teaches us that the determining factor, the determining factor in whether you and I live a life of fulfillment or a life of uselessness is who or what you give control of your mind to. What influences you? What is the primary influencer in your life? That's what determines whether you live a life of happiness and fulfillment or whether you live a life that culminates in judgment and is useless, ultimately, in this life. And that couldn't be clearer in verses 1 and 2. Let me read both of these to you. Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, here's the contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Day and night. 
So he's clearly teaching by giving us a negative, what to avoid, and then giving us the positive side of that, what to embrace. So first of all, the man who lives well is careful to avoid being shaped and formed by certain people. Who are those people? Well, there's three different words used here to describe those people. They are the wicked, they are sinners, and they are scoffers. The wicked are those who are opposed to God's plans and purposes. Their worldview, their perspective on what constitutes a life well lived is in opposition to God's plans and his purposes. Sinners are those who act. Their behavior shows that they are in defiance of God's word. And scoffers are those who mock God's word and those who obey God's word and follow his word. They belittle God and his character. And so the man who lives well avoids these people being the primary influencer in his life. But he's also careful to avoid them shaping him in certain areas. What areas? Well, look at verse 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So the counsel, the way, and the seat. He's not influenced by the thinking, which is the counsel, by the behaving, the acting, the lifestyle of these people, or is he's not influenced by the desire to belong to this group of people. He's not dependent on what they think of him, and he doesn't desire to be accepted into their group, their way of thinking and seeing the world. And so each of these descriptions, the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of scoffers, each of these describes a close association and proximity to the advice and the actions and the perspective of the ungodly. Now, think about this really practically speaking for someone who was living during this time, right? If you think about life in Israel during this time, there was generally only one way that you would find yourself in close association with this type of person. I mean, what would you have to do? If you were living in your house with your family and none of them were sinners or wicked, thinking in this way, then you had to leave your house. You had to physically go to a place where these people were. You had to sit down with them, with the scoffers, and you had to listen to them, and you had to think through what they were saying and accept it as true. And that's hard for us to translate today because influences are coming at us all the time in a myriad of different ways. I mean, no doubt this week you have experienced people of the world trying to shape you and form you and influence you in particular ways. You can open your web browser this afternoon and you can receive the counsel of the wicked. You can drive in your car and listen to talk radio and stand in the path of sinners. You can watch late night television and sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong in and of themselves per se, but it's so easy today to give ourselves to the influence of the ungodly. 
And the point here is not for you to go and cut off all interaction with unbelievers and sequester yourself in your house and, and never interact with anything that is, is said or written or done by an unbeliever. That's not the point here. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what he's saying. But I am shocked by how cavalier I am at times, and so many of us are, with who or what we give access to our minds and our thinking. We give control to our perspectives and our emotions to all sorts of people. And I think we have to ask ourselves some really tough questions here regarding who influences our lives. What is primarily shaping you day in and day out? Who are you and I giving our time and attention to that is controlling us by its influence? And the good life here, he says, comes from avoiding the power, the shaping influence of these types of people from their thinking, their actions, and the desire to belong to their club. But in Scripture, you always avoid something, you always shun something in order to pursue something else. You never just cut off an influence. You never just stop doing something. You stop this so that you can pursue this. And that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 2. But the man who is happy and flourishing and living well, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now I want you to notice something about the way this verse is structured here. This is poetry, and here's how this verse comes to us. His delight and meditates day and night are the outer edges. And you can see in the middle, he sandwiches the law of the Lord and on his law. And it's that way on purpose. The outer edges here, delighting and meditating on, aren't exactly the same thing, but they fit together, and they go together, and they're similar. And what he's saying here is, what you delight in, what you are eager for, and what you want will be what you think about and what you meditate on. But then it also works vice versa. It doesn't just flow one way. It flows the other way, too. What you think about, what you give your mind to in influence and control will ultimately develop your passion and your delight. And so it works both ways here. And that's what he's saying. To delight in something here is to find pleasure in it, to be eager for it. The word for meditate here, the opposite side of this, or the complementary piece of, of delight, the word for meditate is used of constant interaction with something, with some thought, some way of seeing things. It's literally used of animals to talk about the constant noises that they make. And what he's saying here is, is this is never far from your mind. You chew on it. You think about it. You have constant interaction with it. Well, what is he talking about? What's the subject matter that we delight in and we constantly think about? It's right in the middle there, the law of the Lord. It's on his law that we delight and that we meditate on. 
And so what it means by law is it's the instruction of God. It directs us. It points us in a specific direction, the right direction, the life of well-being. And so when we read law, we often think in terms of specific rules, right? And we think in terms of the Old Testament law. And so we think there's all these sacrificial laws, and there's laws regarding what whether we can eat shrimp or not, and there's laws regarding, you know, whether we can wear fabric with two different types of, uh, you know, or clothes with two different types of fabric in them and all of that. And so we think specifically of rules and regulations in the Old Testament, and this certainly includes rules and regulations because we're, those are for our good that God gives those things, but it actually expands out much broader than that. It's not just the rules and regulations that we are to think about. The word here is Torah. And it involves the story that God is working out in all of human history. It's talking about everything from Genesis, where we have the creation story and the pattern of life that is supposed to be, that God designed for us as human beings. And it's talking about the fall into sin. And it's talking about God's promises to Abraham and how he developed those promises and kept those promises to Abraham's descendants. And it's talking about God rescuing his people out of Egypt Redeeming them from slavery and bringing them into the promised land. The law of the Lord encompasses all of these areas. Not just the rules, but certainly including the rules. And so the point here is that you and I are to internalize the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures. And when that happens, that will shape our perspectives and our actions and our sense of belonging. Who do we want to be with? That will be determined by the way in which we engage God's word. And so what he's calling for here, what he says is the life that is a good life, is a life that is primarily controlled and influenced by God's Torah, by his word, by the story that he is working out in all of human history. So I want to slow down and think about this word meditate here for a couple of minutes. Because I think this is so important for us in our particular time period. Why? Our cultural moment, the last maybe 10 or 15 years, has over and over been again been called the age of distraction. We are, and I think that's appropriate, that's exactly right. We are a distracted people. I am a distracted person, and this is becoming more and more clear to me over the last few weeks. The problem is today, we cannot bear the thought of boredom, of being alone with our thoughts and not having anything to entertain us for more than like half a second. And we get panicky and anxious and we got to pull our phone out and we got to look at it or we've got to be entertained. And we can't be alone with our thoughts at all. And besides that, we fill our schedules with all sorts of activities and things to do. And some of those things are good things to do and they're appropriate and they're right. But then we come back from all of those activities, we flop down in our chair or in bed, we pull out our smartphone, our tablet, we turn on the television, and we amuse our shriveling minds with an endless supply of distraction and entertainment. We wonder, I really don't have time to meditate on the Word of God. John Piper is very helpful in a lot of things. And I love this quote that he said. He said this 10 years ago, 2009, really before 
some of the things that completely distract us today, like social media, came into their, their full present condition. But this is what he said about even the early days of social media. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I'm not saying those things are wrong to engage with, but I think this is a helpful corrective to how we live our lives and the distractions that we so easily let into our minds. Our distraction prevents our engagement with God in prayer, and it prevents giving ourselves to his word in meditation, and all the while we are filling our minds and giving access and control of our minds to the wicked, to sinners, and to scoffers. And we're filling the buckets of our minds with all sorts of things, and we don't have room to sit and to think and delight in the story that God is working out in his word. And I'm talking to myself here as much as anyone. So let me challenge you, and let me challenge myself this week. Rather than giving yourself to distraction and just going with the flow of what the culture wants to determine for your minutes and hours and days, fill more of your time this week with meditation. And here's what that looks like. Maybe that's a scary word to you. But here's what that looks like. Memorize. First of all, memorize a passage of Scripture. It can be a verse. Commit a verse to memory so that you can have it with you at all times. And then, since you have it with you at all times, pull it out and think about it throughout the day. When you're tempted to pull out your phone, when you're tempted to flip on the TV, spend five minutes before you do that thinking about that verse, mulling it over, chewing it over in your mind. Recite it. Emphasize each word as you go through that verse in your mind. Think about it over and over again, and as you do that, as you think about it, it will lead to a greater understanding of that verse. And you'll start to see how it fits together and what God is teaching in it. And then as you begin to have understanding, then turn it into a matter of prayer before the Lord and go to Him with it and recite back the principles that you're learning from that verse to the Lord and then turn from speaking those truths to God to speaking those truths to yourself and exhort yourself. Preach the truths of that verse to yourself. Exhort yourself with God's character, with who he is, and with his purposes. So memorize, think, understand, pray, and exhort. Memorize, think, understand, pray, and exhort. And I say those over and over again so that you can write them down if you want to. Now, here's the question, though. What would actually happen for us? I mean, this is pretty clear, right? Like, there's two paths to live, and, and here's one, and here's the other. One leads to well-being and flourishing. What would actually happen in our lives if we would even begin this process of meditating on the Word of God, the law of the Lord, day and night? Well, that brings us to our second contrast, the contrast of constancy, of stability, Here's the result. Here's what this looks like. Verses three and four. Look at verse three. He, the one who is delighting in the law of the Lord, who's meditating day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Notice here that this tree has the right source of influence, doesn't it? 
It's drawing control and influence from the right place. It has been planted by a stream that provides continual nourishment to it. It has all that it needs for life and for fruitfulness, and it demonstrates that. Look at the rest of the verse. That yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Of course, in this case, for us, the stream of water that you and I need that leads us to these things is the Word of God. The way for us to flourish, the way for us to be like this tree is to give ourselves to the Word of God. And yet, so many of us have moved away from the stream of God's Word. It's like we've taken the tree and planted it as far away from the Word as we can get it. And then we wonder why things are difficult. And we wonder why we aren't walking in delight and obedience to God. And when that happens, the results of verse 3 don't happen. They don't yield fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. This tree that is next to this stream is not affected by drought or heat in the same way as other trees. It's not saying that everything will be perfect and that there won't be drought and heat and that there won't be difficult things that come into our lives. The battle with sin will still be there. But the point here is that this tree is connected to the nourishment that it needs from the stream, and it can endure those things. And even in the midst of enduring, it yields fruit, and its leaf doesn't wither like other trees will. It continues to produce even if it's hard. And it's, I think reading this verse, you have to think back to the Garden of Eden and what the trees and the plants would have looked like in the Garden of Eden, filled with fruit and flourishing. And filling my life with the Word of God brings that sort of well-being into my life. It's a foretaste of the way things should be. This is how a tree was designed to work and to function before the fall. And so filling my life with the Word of God brings me in some small sense back to that. This is the way, a foretaste of the way things should be for us. Well-being and flourishing. I also think it's hard to read this and not think about what Paul says in Galatians 5 regarding the fruit of the Spirit. There's a pretty decent chance that he's pulling this language to describe the result of being connected to the Word of God and walking in the Spirit. You produce fruit because you're right next to the stream. Look at the last phrase of verse 3. In all that this person does, he prospers. Now, that word prosperity has been sort of hijacked by our culture to mean material wealth. But that's not what prosperity means here in this verse. And this psalmist here is actually taking us all the way back to Joshua chapter 1. And you know this passage, the book of, this book of the law. These are God's words to Joshua as he assumes command of Israel and replaces Moses, the greatest leader the nation had ever known or would know for a long time. But here's what God says to him. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God wasn't telling Joshua he would have material wealth if he would just think about the word of God. 
What he was saying to him is, you will be who you should be. You will be effective as a leader if you will give yourself and your meditation to the Word of God continually. Now, the other thing to notice about this description in verse 3 is this is not a reward for meditating on the Word of God. It's not as if God says, oh, hey, that's great. You're thinking about the Word a lot and praying over it, so I'm going to reward you with stability. This is the natural outflow. This is the natural result of giving yourself to the Word of God. This is the way life works as God has designed it. Influence by the Scriptures brings about this stability and fruitfulness and prosperity. The result of constant exercise is the strengthening of your heart, and the result of constantly meditating on the Word of God is spiritual prosperity and stability. But this is not the same result that happens for the other person, for the person who gives himself continually to the influence of the wicked and to sinners and to scoffers. Look what it says of him in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the husk part of the wheat. It gets blown away during the threshing process. And the winnower throws the wheat up in the air, And the chaff gets blown away while the wheat, the heavier, useful part, falls back to the ground and is able to be collected and used. And the contrast here between usefulness, between fruitfulness, and between uselessness in the chaff could not be more clear. And so those who give themselves to the influence of the wicked and to sinners, their lives will be characterized by uselessness, by lack of importance. They will be lightweights, spiritually speaking. And all of that is regardless of how they are perceived by the world and by the culture. It's in God's eyes. And of course, living like this, the result of these two lives that are influenced in these two particular ways ends somewhere. And that's our third contrast. The contrast of conclusion, verses 5 and 6. And the destination of these two groups is quite clear. Look at verse 5 and 6. Therefore, as a result of living this way, as a result of stability in your life or not stability, of fruitfulness versus uselessness, which all the way goes back, or goes all the way back to the word of God, or your the matter of control and influence, the result, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way The lifestyle of the wicked will perish. Because of their useless and lightweight lives, again, regardless of how they are perceived in the world and the culture, the wicked will have nothing to stand upon in the day of judgment. This is the conclusion to the way they have lived their lives. And it it does often seem like sinners are prospering in this life. They may have a lot of money, they may have a lot of influence, they may seem to have a lot of fun in certain ways, but this is the reality. Judgment day is coming. You and I were made to meet our maker. God created us. He gave us the gift of life, and you and I will stand before him one day. That's how he designed it. And there are two options when you stand before him. Verse 6 
explains those. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The lifestyle of the wicked will suffer judgment, but the the lifestyle, the pattern of living, giving of itself to the word of God is known by the Lord. Now, this doesn't just mean that God is aware of what's happening. This word know has a much more intimate meaning than that. It means that God walks along with this person throughout his or her life. He guides them. He protects them. He oversees their path with all that he is and his loving care for them. And so I think the big question here in verse 6, and really the big question as we come to the conclusion of this, of this psalm is, who are the righteous in verse 6? I mean, that's who we want to be, right? If all of this, if the way this is described in verse or in this psalm is true, then we want to be people who conclude in verse 6 the way God describes the righteous here. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We don't want to perish. We want to be the righteous. So, so who are they? Who is being described as righteous here? And I think it would be easy to read this and maybe think, well, these are the people who are morally spectacular. They're the really good people who do everything right. But the righteous here are those who are filled with God's word, and so they know that they are not righteous in and of themselves. They know that they don't have it all together because they're very familiar with the story of Genesis 3, and they're very familiar with the way the Scriptures describe life after Genesis 3. But because they know God's Word, they also understand that God rules and reigns, and they know that they are born opposed to Him. The righteous understand that each one of us is born a wicked person, a sinner, and a scoffer. And so what makes them righteous? What makes this person turn from verse 1 to verse 2, to being influenced by the wicked and sinners and scoffers, to turning to verse 2, where they delight in the law of the Lord? Because that does not come naturally to us, does it? And so what makes that change? I think the change is found at the end of chapter 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I think the righteous are found right here. They have recognized God's rule and sovereignty and reign through his word, and they've come to grips with their need to find refuge in God's king, in God's son. And so the righteous are those who know their sin, they know their opposition, and they know that they need to humbly submit to God's purposes. They know that they can do nothing to secure forgiveness of sins on their own, and so they run to God's chosen king, and they take refuge in him. And he is their everything. They are covered, and they are hidden in him and his righteousness. And so let me ask you this morning, with this contrast, these contrasts put in front of you in Psalm chapter 1, are you covered in the righteousness of the Son this morning? Are you taking refuge in Him? Now notice what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you've gone to church for a long time. I'm not asking if you're a really nice person. 
Not asking if you did something good this week. Not asking if you prayed a prayer when you were younger. I'm not asking if you were baptized. It's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if this morning, if the driving delight of your life is God's purposes revealed in his word and culminating in his son. The son will be your only delight if you recognize the precarious situation you're in as a sinner and seek refuge in him through repentance and faith. And that's the reality of the situation. That is who the righteous are. They find refuge in him. Not in church attendance, not in being a nice person, not in their good outweighing their bad, not in praying a prayer as a child, but they continually find delight and rest and refuge in the Son, the chosen King. And one of the things I love about the Bible as a whole, and the Psalms in particular, and you know this if you read through the Psalms, but the Psalms and the whole Bible doesn't just give us the information that we need doesn't just give us information, but the Bible is written in a way that motivates us. It's written in a way to change us through helping us to want the right thing, to have the right desires. And so the Bible comes to us like Psalm 1. I mean, which of these two paths do you want to be on this morning based on this description here? Do you want to be like the chaff or do you want to be like the tree planted by a stream of water. I mean, it couldn't be clear which of these you and I should aspire to be and should want to be and desire to be. Do you want your end to be that the Lord knows you and he will know you even as you stand before him because you're in his son? Or do you want your end to be that you perish because you're not finding refuge in him? And so I love the way the Bible describes the contrast here and helps us to want this and compels us and motivates us to pursue it in our own lives. And there really are only two paths in this life. And the fundamental difference in Psalm 1 is what controls us, what influences us. And what controls each of us is what we give our days and our weeks and even our minutes and our seconds to. And so... Let's commit this morning, through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, to make Psalm 119.97 our prayer. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Let's pray. Father, we want to be fruitful people. We want to live well. You have given us the gift of life and we want to use it in the best way possible. And so help us this morning to take stock of what we are giving control of us to. Who is influencing each person here? Is it the word of God or is it something else? Are we finding refuge in the chosen king in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we seeking refuge in any number of other things? Help us to see the clear contrast between those who are known by the Lord and those who are unknown by the Lord and who will perish in the judgment. 
Help these things to sink deeply into our hearts and our minds and change our perceptions and our perspectives this morning. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.